Good morning. Today's passage is a selection of readings from the book of Matthew, chapter 7. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came. And the wind blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. The word of the Lord. In reflecting on our passage this morning, uh, one thing I don't think we appreciate, you know, Jesus talks about the danger of pigs turning around trampling and attacking you. And I was just talking to Pastor Matt, uh, and he shared this with me. But did you know that more people are killed by pigs each year than by sharks in this world? And so Jesus is talking about one of the more dangerous domestic animals that there are, the pig. All right, so that's important to keep in mind as we go through our sermon here this morning, the danger of pigs. All right, now, so we're coming this week, so we've, we're going up through um, Easter even, um, this, this sermon series, going through Matthew. And uh, we've spent the last few weeks in the Sermon on the Mountain here in Matthew chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount, this great block of Jesus's teaching that he gives at the beginning, beginning of his ministry. It's ending, and here he's laying out his vision for this is what a kingdom life looks like. This is what it looks like to be a disciple, a member of God's kingdom. This is how you should live and act and think and believe. And in Matthew, um, you know, one of these recurrent themes is that he's, he's connecting Jesus to the Old Testament, the fulfillment of prophecy uh, of everything that's come before. And so in Matthew, uh, he, Jesus actually has these five blocks of teaching. And I, and I think, you know, mirroring kind of the five books of Moses. So this is this kind of new law that Jesus 
is teaching and laying down. But each one of these five blocks of teaching that Jesus gives in Matthew, they all end the same way. All five of these sermons end the same way. They, they always end with a warning to his audience that if they don't pay attention, they're going to miss out on the kingdom. And given the historical circumstances, that makes sense. Jesus saw the way that his contemporaries were seeking to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth, and he saw that it was going to lead to their destruction. This was the, the way of, of resistance to Rome, violent resistance to Roman rule and, and revolution, and Jesus saw that those who lived by the sword would die by the sword. And those who thought, sought to bring the kingdom by force would find that in the end, everything would come crashing down upon their heads like the house built on sand at the end of our passage. And Jesus was prescient. All of it did come crashing down. Less than 40 years after his, his ministry, Jerusalem was sacked and the temple destroyed and still hasn't been rebuilt. You know, 2,000 years later, all that remains is, is the western wall, the wailing wall. And around 100, 100 years after Jesus' crucifixion, there was another Jewish revolt that resulted in, in, in all Jews being expelled from Jerusalem and barred from returning, meaning that Jerusalem wouldn't be a Jewish city again for almost two millennia. And so when we understand that, that we can understand why Jesus warned that those who heard his teachings and didn't put them into practice, those who sought to bring the kingdom of God by other means, were heading towards destruction. But Jesus' words of warning still ring true. He wasn't just addressing those who would see Jerusalem fall within their lifetimes. Jesus' audience, of course, he's speaking into his contemporary world, but, 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 but we are let in on this as well. His warnings include us, too, that there are stakes involved when we hear these words of his and we fail to put them into practice. Jesus isn't just talking about a national catastrophe that, that, that is going to befall Israel if they don't heed his words. This is about the, the, the personal, the existential, the spiritual danger that threatens us all. And as a preacher in 21st century America, you know, I'm not really into to warnings. That's right, you know, I'd rather just preach hope. You know, that's, that's Jonathan Edwards, you know, sinner in the hands of an angry God. You know, that, that, that's, that's then, this is now. You know, at the end of the day, just preach. You know, everything's going to turn out okay in the end, so, you know, don't worry about a thing because every little thing is going to be all right, as Bob Marley once sing, sang, sung. But we can't do justice to Jesus' message. We can't do justice to who he was and what he said if we don't take these warnings seriously or if we just historicize them and explain them away. Jesus was an apocalyptic teacher with an eschatological edge. He was declaring that, that in him, in his ministry, God was breaking into the world decisively to bring everything to a climax. And that judgment day was right around the corner. And so when everyone had to get ready, get real, get right with the Lord before it was too late. And so Jesus' message then and now is that the kingdom has come near. And so the time for a decision is now. How are you going to live, wisely or foolishly? And who are you going to trust in, Jesus and his way or, or someone else? What road are you going to take, the, the, the narrow one or the broad one? And so the Sermon on the Mount is not, you know, just Jesus' suggestions for how you might want to live your best life now. 
They are this take it or leave it proposition. And so I want us to hear what he's saying with its full force, to hear them as a call to action and a challenge to change. That's why when Jesus finished teaching, folks were astounded. They weren't ho-hum, they weren't shrugging, they weren't bored. Because Jesus taught with authority. He taught without footnotes, no appeals to any other authorities or experts. Jesus threw down and he said, this is the way to the kingdom. And then he went down the mountain and he started down the road and, and, and everyone who had heard was left with this decision. Am I going to follow him? Am I going to walk down this road that he's taking, the one that leads to the cross? And so the kingdom, Jesus, always confronts us with this choice. And they were amazed because they knew what they had heard was the truth. No equivocations, no punches pulled. They had just heard about how to enter the kingdom from the king himself. And they were in awe. One commentary summarizes the, the Sermon on the Mount in this way. It says, in Matthew chapter 5 through, 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, only one character opens his mouth. There is no dialogue, there are no questions, and there is no vocal response. Jesus' words are ringed in silence. This focuses all attention on him. Well, it also implicitly presses upon us his great authority. When he speaks, Jesus is alone and by himself. And so what we have this morning then aren't, aren't, aren't these seemingly disconnected little bits of, of wisdom at the end of the sermon. You know, Matthew's sort of grab bag he had to throw in at the end of the Sermon on the Mount on chapter 7. But they're the teachings of, of the master on the best possible way to live as it pertains to judging and praying and treating others. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. What, what Jesus says about judging in verses 1 through 6, what he says about praying in verses 7 through 11, and what he says about living in verse 12. So first, uh, about judging. Uh, growing up, I was a, a, a huge hip-hop fan, and so there's this phrase that I learned from the great Tupac Shakur, but it's also the title of a Master P album, and it's this, only God can judge me. Only God can judge me. And to be honest, I'm not exactly totally sure what the phrase means, but I think that it means something like this, that even though from the outside it, it, it looks like, you know, uh, one is living what, what Tupac would call, you know, the thug life, and that's actually what he had tattooed across his stomach, you know, even though it looks like you're living the, the, the thug life, which is this morally compromised life, one might say, uh, uh, it's more complicated than that. Unless you're God, you can't understand what circumstances brought him to such a place of desperation. Only God can judge him because only God knows what he's been through. I think there's something to that. Jesus says, judge not that you not be judged. And just like only God can judge me, what, what does this mean? It all depends on what Jesus means by this word judge. And, and it's a word that carries a variety, a, a wide array of possible meanings. And one thing that, that the word judge can mean is simply evaluate or make a comparison. You know, so for example, this sermon, it's good or bad, or it's better or worse than, than last week. That would be an example of this kind of judging. So is Jesus saying we shouldn't do that? You know, of course he's not saying that. The, 
this is just the kind of evaluating as judging that Jesus is talking about, verse 6, with giving what's holy to dogs or, or casting pearls at swine. The kind of judging that Jesus is talking about is the kind of judging that a, well, I guess a judge does. Pronouncing a sentence of ultimate condemnation upon others. So what's wrong with that? A handful of things. So, Whose job is it to do that kind of, of judging? That's God's job. And so when we, we, we judge someone by just dismissing them or writing them off or consigning them to hell, we are putting ourselves in God's place. Not only can only God judge me, God alone is the ultimate judge of you. This side of glory, at least, that, that kind of judging, that kind of ultimate judging is above our pay grade. The great uh, Puritan commentator on, on the whole Bible, Matthew Henry, has this to say on Jesus' command to not judge. He says, he who usurps the bench shall be called to the bar. In other words, if you try to put yourself in God's place as judge, you're going to find yourself called to the bar of divine judgment. And judge not really means this. Judge yourself first. Why? Because when we judge ourselves first, that's a way of being poor in spirit. People who judge themselves first are, are more honest and more humble and more loving. There, there's something so refreshing about people who can honestly evaluate their own behavior and admit their own faults. People who don't go looking first for specks in others' eyes, but, but, but who can see the planks in their own. People who are honest, that honest about their faults and, and, and their failings, we feel like we can trust them because we know that they're not out to condemn us but to help us. And sometimes the most helpful thing that someone can do is, is share with us their failure because failure can be this beautiful gift even though it oftentimes comes wrapped in, in, in an ugly package. But being honest about our own faults, our failures, our sins and shortcomings, it's this radical act of solidarity that says, you and I, I'm no better than you. We're all equal at, at the foot of the cross. And, and it's so hard to do. It's so hard for me to admit that I'm no better than anyone else at the most basic, fundamental level. That I am a sinner saved by grace. And I'm not in a position of great righteousness or privilege. And just because I might know more about, you know, God or, or the Bible based on my studies or whatever, that doesn't matter. When we see the planks in our own eyes, it, it, it makes us honest. And, and secondarily, it makes us humble. There's nothing more humbling than coming to fully appreciate your own faults. As a husband, as a father, a son, a pastor, a friend, a citizen, a Christian, whatever. I just think, my gosh, how many times have I just failed royally? How have I hurt the people that I, I purportedly love the most? How have I failed to love? How have I honored God with my lips while my heart has been far from him? How often have I not been poor in spirit but proud? How often have I been quick to anger and slow to love? And when I closely examine my own life, I am humbled because what might just look like, you know, a speck to you, it, it, it's, it's like a log to me. When we're honest with ourselves and we closely examine our sins, we ought to be humbled because we see them not as, as little specks, but, but we're so close to them that they look like big logs 
And finally, when we judge ourselves, it makes us more loving. More loving because we have sympathy with those who struggle, because we struggle ourselves. More loving because we understand that, that every single one of us, in, in some way or another, is in the fight of our lives. More loving because we will understand what it means to love the sinner and hate the sin. And, and there are people who say, well, that's impossible. But it's not. All of us know what that means. All of us have experience with that, with one person especially, ourselves. Jesus' message is, 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 is don't be so critical of others. Be critical of yourselves first, but that doesn't mean that we can't be discerning. It's like he's saying, don't be so critical, but, but in verse 6, then be a little critical. Don't give what's holy to dogs. Don't cast your pearls at swine. And so being a Christian means being innocent as dove, yes, but also being as wise as serpents. And you might say, well, isn't this Jesus just contradicting himself? You know, he says, don't, don't judge someone and isn't calling someone a dog, you know, which was, there were beloved pet dogs in antiquity, but there was also a lot of, if you've ever been to a third world country, you know, there's a lot of mangy, wild, dirty dogs running around. And, and pigs, I mean, my gosh, those weren't even kosher. So, like, you shouldn't even have a pig around you. And, and so you say, Jesus, you're calling people dogs and pigs. Isn't that judging them? But Jesus is teaching us about the need to be wise and discerning. And so wisdom is about not knowing just what to say, but when to say it. It's, it's not knowing about just what medicine someone might need, but what dosage they need it in. And my favorite example of 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 this kind of wisdom, proverbial wisdom, comes from the book of Proverbs itself, where in back-to-back verses it says this in chapter 26, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. And then answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So what is it? Don't answer a fool according to his folly or answer a fool when they're being foolish. Takes wisdom. They don't contradict but complement one another. The same way verses 1 through 5 about not judging and then verse 6 about not giving what's holy to dog or casting pearls before swine. Complement one another. Wisdom is, is, is like these words from the great Kenny Rogers. You've got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away, and when to run. And you never count your money at the table because there's time enough for counting when the game is done. Okay. All right. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> so... All right, so how can we be non-judgmental people? That's hard. How can we be wise? And that leads us to Jesus' next teaching on prayer. We need to be sparing in our criticism and profligate in our prayer. And so we ought to pray for people a hundred times more than we criticize them. And what Jesus says about prayer here, it's so beautiful because honestly, the Sermon on the Mount is a hard teaching. It's demanding. Jesus is asking a lot of his followers but, but, but God, when we understand the Sermon on the Mount, we shouldn't understand God as, as this horrible taskmaster asking more and more of his people, driving us harder and harder until we break. No, Jesus teaches that God is like a generous father who wants to give us the grace we need, the good things that we need to flourish. And the promises that Jesus makes here concerning prayer, they almost seem too good to be true. But at its core, this is the truth that we need. God wants us to pray, pray, pray. God doesn't want us to be shy or apologetic when we pray. He just wants us to pray for what we think that we want. And we can be sure that ultimately God will give us what we need. 
And there's maybe this sense, we'll ask, you know, and it'll be given to you. Seek, you're going to find, knock, and it'll be opened unto you. That, 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 you know, you could abuse this, this prayer or turn, try to turn God into a vending machine or something like that. But I don't think that's the danger for the most of us. I don't think most of us are tempted to view God that way. I think the risk for most of us is that we, not that we'll abuse this gift of prayer, but we won't ever use it. Friends, Jesus is giving us permission here. He's commanding us to pray, pray, pray. And Matthew Henry's thoughts on these verses here, they are so beautiful. He, he writes, prayer is the appointed means for at- obtaining what we need. Pray, pray often, make a business of prayer, and be serious and earnest in it. Ask, he says, as a beggar asks alms. Ask as a traveler asks for directions. Seek as for a thing of value that you have lost, or as the merchantman seeks goodly pearls. Knock as he that desires to enter into the house knocks at the door. Sin has shut the door and barred the door against us. By prayer we knock, and whatever you pray for, according to the promise, shall be given to you. If God thinks it fit for you, and what would you have more? And so six different times, and in six different ways, Jesus is almost begging us to pray. And as I've been studying this week, I've just tried to, I've been convicted by this, tried to make it a habit. When I've been worried or bothered or grateful, just pray, just say a little prayer. God, thank you. God, help me. God, I am anxious about this. And I've asked myself, why haven't I been doing this all along? It's like those words of, of, of the great hymn, oh, what peace we often forfeit, oh, what foolish pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. So we've seen what Jesus says about, about judging and about praying, but went and saved the best for last. The golden rule, what Jesus says about living. As Jesus puts it, Jesus puts it so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. In other words, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And the golden rule, it occurs in some form across, you know, many different religions, many different cultures, but no one puts it quite like Jesus. And within Pharisaic Judaism, you know, we think of of the Pharisees, there's this one monolithic block of them, and there are Jesus' foils in, in, in the New Testament. But within Pharisaic Judaism in the first temporary, there are actually two different schools of thought. There was the school of this figure named Shammai and the school of Hillel. And Hillel, if you've gone to a public university or maybe not, the Hillel house, they still exist at most colleges and universities. That's like the Jewish student center. And so Shammai, he was the more rigorous and Hillel was the more uh, uh, liberal interpreter. And so there's this story about a, a Gentile who went to each of them respectively. And so this Gentile, he said to, he said to Shammai, he said, Rabbi, I will convert if you can teach me the whole law while I stand on one leg. And so Shammai heard this, and he reached for a piece of wood that was standing next to him, and he whacked the guy's leg so that he fell on the ground and sent him on his way. And so the guy went to uh, Hillel, and he said, Rabbi, I will convert if you can teach me the whole law while I am standing on one leg. To which Hillel replied, What is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow. This is the whole Torah the rest is explanation. Go and learn. So that's his version of the golden rule. And, and what his and basically all the other ones have in common is that they are essentially negative. 
Don't do unto others what, what you wouldn't have them do unto you. And so what's the difference between the negative and the positive versions of the golden rule? I would say all the difference in the world. The negative version doesn't really require much from you, but basically leave people alone, which is pretty good advice. I mean, you could do worse than to just leave most people alone, but it, it's passive. You can keep it by keeping quiet and kind of keeping to yourself. But, but Jesus teaches us that there is so much more to the kingdom, that we have a positive obligation towards other people, even if we're paying attention to the Sermon on Mount, towards our enemies. Jesus wants us to actively love our neighbors and our enemies. And I love what Chesterton has to say about this. He says, the Bible tells us to love our neighbors and also to love our enemies, probably because generally they are the same people. <laughs> the life of discipleship isn't one of quiet, passive withdrawal from the world, but, but passionate engagement to bless and serve even those who hate us. That's hard. This is the greater righteousness that Jesus was talking about at the beginning of the sermon. And Jesus' great, greatest desire isn't that we hear his words, but that we actually do them. And, and so to keep the golden rule, it can be summed up in this simple equation, hearing plus doing equals obedience. And when we do that, we were building on a solid foundation, the only foundation, Jesus says, that will last. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. In closing, the, the Sermon on the Mount is hard because it, it seems impossible. And over the years, there's been many approaches to how to understand it so we can sort of lessen its demands. And one approach says, well, that only applied to a different dispensation. Just when Jesus was walking the earth, uh, uh, you know, before his crucifixion and resurrection, the, the, the Sermon on the Mount applied to that very brief period of time. Another interpretation says the only point of the Sermon on the Mount is to make us so aware of our sin that it drives us to seek God's grace. That's not bad. Better than the first. Another says, well, Jesus was an eschatological prophet. He thought the end of the world was near. And so these were the rules for a community that expected God's imminent return. And so he was wrong about that. And so what we need to do then is sort of find the spirit of, of how we can keep these particular um, teachings, these rules, the spirit, but not the letter. And then there's another approach that says, well, just do it. And to paraphrase what Chesterton says about Christianity here, it's not that the Sermon on the Mount has been tried and found wanting. It's that it has been found difficult and not tried. And so the Sermon on the Mount ought to, ought to stir us from our religious slumber into action while at the same time driving us to our knees in prayer to be hearers and doers only by the grace of God. And, and this challenge uh, to be not just hearers but doers is captured in this beautiful prayer that came from the 1948 uh, Lambeth Conference, which is the global gathering of Anglican bishops. And, and they opened with this prayer. And if you think about it, you know, they're just probably less than three years removed at this point from the you know, greatest war the world had ever known, and, and their country in ruins and rebuilding. And so they, they opened with this prayer, and let us close with it and be our prayer this morning. Almighty God, give us grace to be not only hearers, but doers of thy holy word, not only to admire, but to obey thy doctrine. 
not only to profess, but to practice thy religion, not only to love, but to live thy gospel. So grant that we learn of thy glory, we may receive into our hearts and show forth in our lives through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.